Hello and welcome to the Apache Cassandra Corner, a community-driven podcast for all things Apache Cassandra. The Apache Cassandra Corner is sponsored by Datastax. I am your host, Aaron Pletz. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the show. Um, today, I am joined by Aaron Morton. Uh, Aaron, welcome to the show. Uh, hello, Aaron. This is weird. <laughs> like, yeah, I know, right? We, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that scene in Jurassic Park where, where the you know professor's up there talking to himself. Yeah, that, that's okay. <laughs> so, hey, why don't you uh, for, start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Cool. Thanks. So I uh, I live in New Zealand, mm -hmm. um, down here in Wellington, but I'm originally from Australia. And I did the thing when I was sort of 26, 27, brought a one-way ticket and went to London and <laughs> uh, lived and worked there for nine years, got married, had a kid, brought a one-way ticket and ended up back, uh, ended up in New Zealand. Um, mm -hmm. My mm -hmm. wife's from here. So I've been here for, I think, 14 years, something oh, wow. like that now, 2009. Uh and it's nice. I get to live in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, jump on planes every now and again. But yeah. otherwise, it's pretty good. So. <laughs> That's awesome. And you're a, um, you know, as as uh, you know, for for exercise, you're an ultra marathoner, right? Yes. Um. So I enjoy like just being a middle pack ultra runner. Mm -hmm. Um. <clears throat> so I did done a couple of done done three or four hundred k runs. Um, was on a, a 160k so 100 mile run last wow. month then uh, had had a few medical things and had to pull out at 107ks mm -hmm. which I was very very sad about so signed up for there's a, a, a long there's a big run in Australia in the middle of May called the yeah, Ultra yeah. Trail Australia and that's meant to be like the second or third biggest event in the world so oh, wow. there'll be five to seven thousand people i would guess so I'll, oh head over there in may and have a go at 100ks in the blue mountains oh that's awesome yeah it's, it, you know i was um i was telling my wife about how you were doing that and it's just it, it blows our minds about how oh yeah you know i went out and i ran 100 miles eh, you know <laughs> that's, that's awesome though. very good way to meditate on life is to yeah. just be alone <laughs> alone by yourself for 16 hours so <laughs> so um now you've been a part of the Cassandra community for for quite a long time, haven't you? Yeah, so I landed here March of two thousand and nine, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. went to work at, at a company that nowadays everyone probably has heard of called Weather Digital. Nowadays mm -hmm. called Weather FX, part of, of the film industry in Wellington, New Zealand. Okay, and at the time we were making Avatar, the first one, and uh, so I came over to work on that. And then in 2010, we had that no sequel summer. And right. there was even reading group. There was a global reading group called the no sequel summer. And that's when we had Redis, uh, CouchDB, I think, back then. Yeah. yeah. React. Cassandra was kind of popped out at version 02 or 03 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So in 2010, I started playing with it because we had a render farm of, I don't know, 30 to 40,000 cores. And right, right. putting databases against that was scary because they could get knocked down. And if they, if you're trying to make something that's useful, that you it can't fail. If you're making right. things that can fail, they're not really useful. <laughs> and so back then, I got, uh, I said, hey, I want to play with this distributed database, and I got a chassis of 32 servers. So it was a six double blade, 16 
16 blades, yeah, two computers yeah. on each blade, two procs on each computer. <laughs> and they were like, oh, you can have this for like a couple of weeks, and but you'll have to give it back to the farm. So I, I started getting involved with it then. Mm -hmm. uh, this mm -hmm. was, there was no schema. The config right. was a JSON file. It was thrift and all thrift, of these things. Yeah. <laughs> and then as Avatar wound down, so that came out the end of 2010, Mm -hmm. uh we got through the end of 2010 and got into 2011 i was like hmm maybe this is like i kind of understand this i've always liked databases always mm -hmm. been was like the database guy where i worked and i can read this code this is java i can kind of read this and understand what's going on i don't this isn't c or c plus plus or like at the time you had erlang a database right. in erlang with, right. with that type <laughs> of thing it's like I can read this, so maybe I could just kind of go and try to make some money on this mm -hmm. somehow. My wife was pregnant with our second kid, and she was like, "How's this going to work?" And I was like, "I, I think <laughs> like I think that what will happen is I'll I'll sit on on the couch and I'll answer these emails for people, and and then someone will come along and give me some money." And she was like, oh, "That's an interesting <laughs> plan." But it kind of worked out. So I've been involved. Since then, I've been involved since mid in the 2010s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then started a company called The Last Pickle in March of 2011 and then joined Datastacks March of 2020. I, I was going to say, so that must be the origin story of The Last Pickle, huh? <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's how it started, just because I was just using that domain mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. for all of the open source work. So I used to just spend a lot of time answering answering emails on Apache. Oh, but I registered yeah, yeah. the domain because when I was yeah in my 20s and in London, I came home drunk one night and just <laughs> registered. And like I had like my first digital camera and I took a picture and I was making a sandwich. I was like, ah, it's the last people. So I registered the domain <laughs> as just a stupid domain. And then sent hundreds and thousands of emails on the user list on that using that domain. So all yeah, the Google yeah. was associated with it. And then it just became funny to go and work with some of the biggest companies in the world and go through procurement and legal and have them yep. all go, what is it that you do? Why do we pay you money? This seems really stupid to me. So, <laughs> that's that's incredible. I've never heard that story before. Just, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I kind of thought, you know, every time that um that I've gone to the lastpickle.com over the years, I still I still do whenever I have to type that out I always like chuckle a little bit because you're right it, it sounds kind of goofy but I mean really it's like if you look back you know over the last you know like five or six years or so of um you know and until you came to data stacks it's like there's so much good information out there um that when when I was at Target and I was trying to, to troubleshoot things um, there are so many times that I ended up on a last pickle article that either you or Nate or, or John Hudded had wrote. And um, yeah, it was just seriously, I mean, you, you you really did put together something special there that um, you know, well, continues to benefit a lot of folks. Absolutely. Yeah, very, very fortunate to land in the right place at the right time. And then, you know, as a as a self-funded consultancy, mm -hmm. there was times when we had some downtime. And Part of our model was we have to understand this stuff, right? We right. have to be really, right. really, it's understandable. That's probably what I used to do a lot of speaking. And what I, I think I often tried to get across to people was it's understandable. You can look at a fault. 
you can look at something happening in the log line, you can go to the code, mm-hmm. you can read mm-hmm. it. It's complex. It's not easy. It does sometimes break your mind, you know, <laughs> trying to understand what 600 servers are doing, trying to collaborate. Oh, right. But it's understandable. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that was really what we were trying to do was just to get across. You can work this stuff out. It's it's doable. So Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Excellent. So um actually a week out from now, we're running an event called Cassandra Forward that uh that you're speaking at. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh about what you're gonna be talking about? Patrick asked me to look at sort of you got 10, 12 minutes, maybe less. <laughs> um and then <laughs> He asked me to look at it and say, well, can, can you just give us a, what, what should developers be interested in be looking at for Cassandra 5 and maybe beyond, right? What is right. coming right. to make the developer experience better? I think there's sort of four or five high-level things that are good for developers. Mm-hmm. Now, one of these you're talking about. <laughs> one of cool them, one, yeah. <laughs> which is what everyone's talking about. Um you know, Patrick and, and everyone else will talk about that a lot. And this is really just bringing a level of transactions to Cassandra and right. really to distributed databases in the industry that have not been there before. So we've had lightweight transactions, which are the Paxos compare and set. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what you do, insert if not exists, update if X still equals Y sort of things. And the court will back that. So you don't have to, the developer experience is unchanged. So you can say, through config, instead of implementing my LW, my comparing sets or, or whatever you want to call it, yep. with like with the Paxos, do it with a cord. Right. Fine, easy, you know, zero effort. But the really interesting part is that it brings the ability to run transactions across partitions. And those exactly. partitions can be across <laughs> different tables. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole new language in there with conditional updates, right? Yep. Like yep. and and rollbacks as well. We have we have rollback. Yep. Yep. It rolls back. Yeah, yeah. It rolls back. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's that's interesting. What's going to be interesting if people um, want to get into this? Uh, number one, I said there's a CEP there for it. There's an attached, like proper computer science white paper mm-hmm. explaining it. If you want to get deep on that? And there's a lot of work going on to to finish off the code on it. Right. What's going to be interesting where people can still get in is. What does the developer experience look like for these actual transactions that are they're not interactive? So I can't say mm-hmm. begin trans and then as a client continue to send requests and requests and then finally do a commit abort. So right. you send your you send your transaction, which is begin, read, if if the value I expect to be there is there, do this insert, do this delete, do this update. Yep. Um, and then do the commit or abort. But we haven't quite locked in what's that like from a driver perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, how do you if you want to st- if you want a statement builder if you want to do something like that? So there's still work out there on that front. So if you're if you're interested in that, there's a good good area to get your hands on it. Okay. Um, related to oh, and that is CEP fifteen. Fifteen. Yep. 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 So related to that is this one called transactional metadata, which is uh, CEP21, a little bit inside baseball if you're just a developer using Cassandra. If you're an operator, um, this is interesting for you as well. Mm -hmm. So what this is, is we have this subsystem in Cassandra 
that uh, is called Gossip. And if you look at the original foundations of Cassandra, it's an uh, it, it's an epidemic based propagation policy. So what happens is every no every three every second I'm going to get. I think it's every, yeah, second. every second. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, every second uh, a node will gossip mm -hmm. to between one and three nodes, depending on its view of the cluster. And they exchange things like, hey, I can see this node's up, this one's down, this is how much data they have, this is how to connect to them, this is their version. And the schema propagation lives in that as well. Mm -hmm. um, this is a probabilistic approach. So I can't, right. there is no single view of the cluster, which was an inherent design principle of Cassandra from day one. Right. right? There was no quote unquote God mode. There was no <laughs> sort of single view of the system mm -hmm. and from uh, now that that has some issues to do with bootstrapping nodes token management uh, but also in schema changes right so you right. can have competing create and drops you know drop a udt the same time you create a table your table may get created and then the udt dropped or something like that on some nodes and your cluster may not restart yep um the DDL changes, schema changes have always been flaky. Um, they've, they've always avoided putting those into the actual hot code path. Mm -hmm. I don't think DDL should normally be part of your operations. But what it does for us, for, for developers, is it makes schema a lot modifications more reliable. Well, not more reliable, reliable. So they're going exactly. to be deterministic. Exactly. So if you shoot, if you, um, as an example, you've got an app and Currently, you may say, well, when I want to stand up an environment for testing or whatever, here is my setup script and it goes and runs and it relies on like CQLSH or something like that that's going to block every statement, wait for it to propagate or something like that. Right. right. There are constants in the code base called a very long time, which is like 30 seconds for schema propagation or something <laughs> like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So now what you might do is say, hey, my code just wants to go and make tables and get itself sorted out to get started. So it can just do that and then expect the database to be a proper database and take care of it all for us and mm -hmm. not let me make mistakes. So from a developer perspective, I think that's a really handy enhancement. I think that's really going to help people um, uh, make it. It's what they call it, one of those zones where you're less likely to shoot yourself in the foot, kind of like exactly. a foot guard something like that <laughs> yeah exactly no you know that that's a great point Aaron about um you know just how how DDL changes have been you know flaky over the years I mean there there have been so many times that I've had to restart like you know 60 to 100 node clusters just because we made a change and we couldn't get schema agreement so I mean this for operators this is huge I think you know yeah. I mean, just just from the just from the amount of work it's going to save them, in, in you know, in terms of just having to go and restart large clusters just because, <laughs> you know, I think that I think that's going to be huge. Yeah, and one of the things we're going to touch on that I'm working on, and it's good for me as well because I like the idea of being able to create tables when I want them and trust them that they're going to be once I get the response, they're ready to go. Right. Right. So right. instead of waiting for propagation in a large cluster. Mm -hmm. You're like, hey, if you tell me that the data that create statements completed, then I should be able to write data to it and I'm not going to wait. Right. So now there's another one called CEP26, Unified mm -hmm. Compaction Strategy. And this is one of these ones where I'm not, you know, I don't have as much familiarity with it. 
Now, compaction has always been one of the two biggest problems for running your own Cassandra cluster, compaction and repair. Yep. And a lot of what we would do as your performance tuning is you're looking at the, the load on the table, what's the read-write ratio, that type of thing. You're rewriting the whole row or are you just doing little bits and well, what are you reading? And you're looking at how to tune compaction. We've got our standard size tiered compaction strategy. We've got level compaction strategy and we've got time window compaction strategy. Yep. And that is a like a dark art. That is, um, <laughs> you know, three fifths kind of science and two fifths just like experience and guessing uh, mm -hmm. and things mm -hmm. like that. So obviously when we're running something in data stacks like Astra, we're not looking at workloads in the same way that if you've got a consultant or we're, you know, TLP days consulting or data stacks consulting or anyone else like InstaCluster or someone like that, who's talking to you in the room and trying to understand your workload and that type of thing. And then sure. can tune it sure. really well. Um, and so for us, and I think Netflix has also contributed on this CEP mm -hmm. as well, is building a compaction strategy that sort of brings them all together, like very kind of Lord of the Rings, like one one compaction strategy to rule, to them, rule all. them all. <laughs> yep. And uh, so the CEP is there for this guy. Um, I you could argue it's it's purely for you know operators and and things like that, mm -hmm. but I think for developers. It's part of making it so that you making Cassandra less scary, right? right. As a developer, to know, uh, well, if I do this, it's going to tank my performance. I can't, you know, I don't want to build queues. I, you know, data data models that overwrite a lot are not good in some situations. Yep. yep. I write slow down compaction, whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I think it broadens the use cases out there. Yeah, for sure. And if anything, too, it makes it so that developers don't have to think so much about, you know, how that how that table is going to be handled, you know, in a in a compaction situation, you know, so I think that's a win right there. <laughs> yeah, one of the ways that we will make Cassandra and we are making Cassandra better for developers is that you don't have to know how it works in order to use it. Right. And yeah, for a long, long time. Um, <laughs> that wasn't had, true. You really had to know how to work. And it's it's over the last couple of years as we've caught up on stability and operations, that mm -hmm. progress on that has slowed down. But certainly things like unified compaction and, and SIA that we're gonna SAI that we're gonna talk about in just a second help that immeasurably, right? Yep. So so yeah, SAIs. <laughs> SAI. Uh Third time's a charm. So SAI is is storage detached indexes. These yep. are secondary indexes on the wiki CEP7. So it's been hanging around for a while. We yeah, really want yeah. to get it in. It's something we have on Astra and DSE. And it is, I think, probably, I don't have to be so... Um, I don't have to qualify it anymore, right? I right. don't think we have to go, oh, I think maybe probably anymore. I think what we've got is indexes that work. And they're not going to work in all situations, secondary indexes, even in uh, a classic B-tree database like MySQL or MSSQL. Mm -hmm. When you put things on, uh, the more indexes you use, the more complex your query, it's slower than just reading by primary key. Right. Right. That's right. just the nature of it. That's just computer science. There's things that can happen in traditional, like MSSQL, MySQL, B-tree-based mm -hmm. things where 
I might have a secondary index and add some columns so it's a cover so it covers queries and I sure, can sure. optimize you know all that down. But if you still send a query that has half a dozen different clauses in the where clause, it's it's going to take longer right. than than not. But not everything has to run as people used to joke me in negative time, right? You mm -hmm. don't have to tune every database query to be sub millisecond. There are some that are that are okay to run for a couple of milliseconds. So SAI is designed to handle multiple indexes per table. Right. Okay. It has some efficient okay. data sharing. So if you look at the CEP7, mm -hmm. there's a nice chart there that shows adding more and more indexes is not a linear addition to the size of the total indexing structures. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, so like if you think of that, those indexes have sort of a couple of things. They have mm -hmm. the value you're indexing, right? So it could yep. be age or something like that. But then they have how you get from that to the actual data. And that piece of information is common, right? So if I have some type of lookup that says, hey, uh, over here, this thing here is actually referring about this thing over here with primary key 72. Mm -hmm. And then if I have 10 indexes that point to that intermediate lookup, they don't all need to replicate storing primary uh, that the primary key index is 72. Mm -hmm. So we're not duplicating data as much. Right, right. And the reason you want to do that is if you've got multiple indexes on the table, you might want to you know use them. You might want to have a where clause that says where age is less than fifty, and country equals New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And you can do that now with SAI. You can have where clauses. They can have multiple terms in them. Only mm -hmm. join together with and. There's some work happening to add more logic there. Mm -hmm. Oh, and nice. <laughs> the current implementation or, or the proposed implementation, because it's not in trunk yet. Mm -hmm. will will be able to use multiple indexes in your query and intersect the results. So oh, nice. Um, this, this goes all the way to the level of saying, I could have an orders table that's got a date on it, and I could just go, all, get me all the orders that happened in the first week of January mm -hmm. and not have to put that in the partition key. Right, right. Primary. Um, there'll still be issues to do with physics and computer science, just because there always is. Right, uh, but right. this is certainly the beginning of of a new style of data modeling. Yeah, you know, um, like I I work with Jeff Carpenter, who's written a couple of books, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, I joke with him. I'm like, Jeff, I'm gonna get up on stage one day and just rip the middle of one of your books out. Be like, we don't need this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, Throw this away. <laughs> that would be pretty epic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, data modeling is. is is a challenge. So there yeah. are the, uh, the the four things I think you could go and look at, um, read the CEPs about. You're going to talk mm -hmm. about some of those. Yep. Uh, uh, certainly SAI and transactions uh, are big changes there. So the other thing we're going to talk about is I work on uh, a project called Stargate. It's mm -hmm. been around for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I started working on it last year. The intention here is how to make Cassandra, the, the power, stability, reliability, all those things useful to more people. Right, right. We've got native binary transport, our custom transport mechanism. We've got CQL, our, our language. We've got some really great drivers and driver experiences. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they don't fit for, for everyone. 
that's not the way that everyone thinks. We know we just discussed transactions, joins, secondary indexes are difficult. Not every use case is a complex SQL data model out there. Right, um, right. <laughs> sometimes people just need some JSON. Sometimes um, people want to, uh, you might be a shop that's all in on gRPC. You're like, hey, we mm -hmm. know how to manage our traffic in the data center over gRPC. And we were all in on that. We're all about instrumentation in our stack bits around gRPC. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe we've got containers running and we've got sidecars that can you know, add to traffic and do whatever else. There's all right. sorts of reasons right. for different things. So one of the things we we, we started with was uh, a document API, a JSON document API. And we've taken a really ground up review of that. Okay. Working okay. with a project called Mongoose from uh, in, in the JavaScript world as- Oh yeah, Mongoose, right, right. <laughs> yeah. As like, what does a JavaScript developer who's just writing code and just needs a data store, uh, how do they think about things? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and so we've worked with Valeri from the Mongoose project and it's been amazing, uh, really fun experience to sort of throw away mentally 12 years of experience and <laughs> right, say, right. Like, well, <laughs> yeah, I know, you know, great. You know, we, we've been through all of these great Cassandra things, mm -hmm. but what about all these other people over here who we have nothing, we, we've never helped them. We've never right. given them the access to uh, something like Cassandra. How can we do that? And how do we change the way we think about things um, to fit the way that they think about things rather than the other way around? Right. You know, so, right. so we don't want to expose that you have to create a partition key you know, or, <laughs> or, or that uh, there are all these limitations. Obviously, it's still, as I say, computer science and physics still get in the way of things. You oh, can't yeah. do everything. <laughs> so what we've built is uh, an, an API, HTTP-based API for now, that uh, has the level of complexity that the people writing Mongoose, code that uses Mongoose, expect. We'll mm -hmm. dive into that for a second. And we've worked with Valeri to integrate that into the JavaScript library with the intention that if you're JavaScript dev and you're just using code with Mongoose, um, you can use Datastax and Cassandra with just a config change. And right. you go, I showed you beforehand, right? It's like two line hey, difference. Uh, <laughs> two line that's difference awesome. where you, you change an import <laughs> and you change a config. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and that's so, it. And, yeah. then, and then we're what you want. Like if you're, you're a JavaScript dev, you're defining types using mongoose and its schema language mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um don't think we mentioned like just how popular mongoose is it has oh i know yeah yeah two million plus downloads a week on npm um <laughs> github claims like two and a half ish million dependent projects uh it is the most popular way to access data on on um npm so uh it's been a really good for us to know how to fit into that world. So sure, we're now sure. using SAI, using what we have for SAI and what we know is coming, using what we know is coming with a cord. Mm -hmm. What we built is a model that allows you to sort of send JSON documents, filter them in the rich level of filtering that you need. So you're not making indexes. If you want to send a filter that says, find me all the documents where that have a human tag, we understand that. The human field in them. We understand that. Sure. We'll give you them back. 
Mm -hmm. um, you want to find all the documents they where people placed an order and it was for, and in that order, there was a, a BMW and an extended warranty. You can give us a query that will say, find all those, update them to add um, gap insurance. Mm -hmm. If they don't already have it and store those back. So the model of interaction from these Java, JavaScript world and right. through Mongoose <clears throat> as an existing platform. So it allowed us to step back and think, well, we've got CQL is a very, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's typically we data model in the sense that we just want to send data and never have to read it. We don't want right. to, we're terrified <clears throat> of read modified, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. for, for good reasons. Um, we, we also have a data model where the server is very dumb <laughs> in, in CQL, right? You go, right, right. hey, just write this data. Mm -hmm. You can do a little bit of logic. You can do, you know, uh, like a set, you can add to a set, which has a little bit of business logic in it, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, add sure, sure. Set, if it's not there, uh, some things like that. But um, the things that we need for a JavaScript world uh, for the mongoose world mm -hmm. is to be able to uh, i think the best example is find one and update so i want to send a query that says here's a filter and this filter could be arbitrary complex it could be just where id equals x or it could be where the uh the length of the array is seven or where you know the three levels deep this field exists and that one and that one that sure sort of thing. Yeah. then i want to do an update and these updates can be non-deterministic so it can be mm -hmm. add a value to a document remove a value increment a number things like that they sure, can be sure. append to arrays pop from arrays all sorts of things store that back and do that in a uh, in a, a a way that honors concurrency properly you know i don't want to lose rights uh right. overwrite <laughs> um i'd like you to give me a projection at the end of that could it be either the document beforehand or the document after? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it's a lot more, it's a lot richer than, yeah. than a sort of, if you think about doing that in Cassandra, you might do a select and then you might do an insert or an update. And yeah. if you did something that was non-deterministic, you know, you, you wouldn't get a, re, you don't get a result set back from the insert or the update and things like that. Um, and, you know, the big elephant in the room there is sorting. Sure. We know that sure. we're going to try to tackle that one, and we're going to try to look at some of the the added things that we could add to the SAI experience that help both data modeling from a SQL perspective, as we said, like get rid of the idea that you have to really understand how Cassandra works. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That could be adding or into the where clauses, things like that. Oh, yeah. And then try to understand <laughs> some order by, right? That's a big one. Imagine if you could it go is. to Cassandra and say, um, Select star from orders where username equals Aaron, order by date descending. Mm -hmm. That would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, Aaron, those sound like super exciting changes. You know, just, yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I know one thing Patrick has said a lot of is that, um, you know, it opens Cassandra up to use cases that we, we haven't, uh, we haven't been able to support yet. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's just really exciting stuff for sure. For sure. And and this is all about also how we how we land this in the open source world as well. Yeah, we're an open source company. Stargate's yep. open source. Yep. Um, and I think the there's some things here that we can extract later on that will help both the CQL world and people who uh, want to self manage and self run still, 
and mm-hmm. put something like Stargate in front and then get access for their JavaScript devs. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, hey, Aaron, I think that's about all the time we have. Um, thank you so much for uh, for sitting down with me today. I mean, I know I've learned a lot just, uh, you know, sitting here listening to you for uh, for a while. So, yeah, this is this has been great. Uh, so thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks. All right, everyone. Have a great day. And that's all for today. Thank you for listening to the Apache Cassandra Corner. Apache Cassandra is a registered trademark of the Apache Software Foundation. Thank you and have a great day.